listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participants, employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Hello, Stomping Jen. Sawtooth Frank. How you doing? <clears throat> Great. You must be excited for this um, episode that we're doing. Uh, we're going to be talking to Mikey Mosher, who is a Chicago-based um, artist who works in collage, video, projection, sculpture, and other types of installations. Yay. You are a collage artist. I dabble. Yeah, I mean, you. Yeah, Just I mean, <clears throat> you have a show coming up. I do have and a show coming up. I think this is going to be really interesting um, to kind of get um, some thoughts from another collage artist out there. This and, is uh, true. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to talking to Mikey. Me too. So we'll do that on the other side of our awesome. what? And um, the out intro. You got right. me all like befuddled. That's right. You got That's me all mashed up. Befuddle people. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. All right, here we go. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Stomping Jam. Oh, did all the buttons. Yeah, I'm not going to sing to you. You're like sneaky like that. Yeah, I am a very, very sneaky host. You are. That's what I'm known for, sneaking around. You are. Well, let's, uh, let's turn this down and say hello to Mikey. Hello, Mikey. Hey, how's it going? Really good. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Um, you know, things have been pretty busy recently, um, but they're starting to slow down, which is really nice. Um, so I'm good. And you're joining us from Chicago, right? That's where you're based I out am. of? Yep. That's an awesome city. I love Chicago. Yeah, me too. It's so orderly. Like... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the streets are so well laid out. You mean not like Boston? It really is. <laughs> yeah, well, Stomping Jen makes a good point. It's like when you go to a city like Boston yeah. that's a mess or like the boroughs of New York that are a total mess. And, you, and, mm-hmm. and then you go to a place like Chicago. It's great. Yeah. Well, New York's like a it's grid. True. Yeah. How long have you been in Chicago? <laughs> uh, I just got to Chicago in August. So oh, nice. only like what, like... Four or five months, five, six months. Nice. I lose track of time. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it's actually also my first time living in a big city. So it's oh, cool. an adjustment, but I really like it. Yeah. Where are you um, moving from? Like what kind of smaller location are you coming from? Yeah. So I was living in Northampton, Mass, um, up until like right before I moved out here. Um, and I grew up on Cape Cod. Oh, nice. So um both very like quiet 
places compared to here. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't realize Mikey mm-hmm. was coming from our area. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. I feel more connected to you now. <laughs> For sure. Um, <laughs> yes. That, yeah. Yeah. I found him uh, in a in a collage magazine that I that I am fond of. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and it said Northampton, and then so I looked him up, and he didn't live in Northampton anymore. But that was okay. <laughs> that was okay. You still agreed I to know, come on this. Know. So, yeah. Uh, what was the collage magazine? It's called Collage, but it's not spelled like collage. It's spelled with a K it's and like a J. A, a, oh, okay. Yeah. L-O-J. Okay, now, is yeah. that um, is that magazine kind of like any other um, artistic journal? You submit pieces to it for consideration? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think it's pretty much anyone can sort of like become part of their directory. Um and you like pay dues to continue to be on that directory. And sometimes they pull people from out of the archives and put them in the physical magazine and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Mikey, um, you, you think of yourself um, and describe yourself as a multidisciplinary artist. And, and in my intro, I tried to talk a little bit about what some of those were, but I'm just kind of curious. I wanted to get your thoughts on what that means to you, like being a multidisciplinary yeah. artist. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I've really only started to think of myself that way since starting the the MFA program that I'm in right now, uh, which is at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, Before that, I mean, I've been doing visual art for like my whole life, but I feel like I only really started taking it seriously like a year or two before I applied here. But since starting the program I've like started experimenting with a bunch of different mediums and so I don't I think coming from collage it doesn't really fit snugly into the major categories that exist in the art community like sculpture printmaking painting like the major um, medium so I feel like I already felt like I was pulling from a lot of different places and now it's like starting to actualize into um really like experimenting Mm -hmm. with um different disciplines yeah and some of those disciplines uh, in addition to like the um hand cut collage are Mm -hmm. and i've seen this in some of your work um when i was going through your website are are um video projection um sculpture right animation um are those all things you've had to kind of teach yourself? Well, so with video, um, actually before, <clears throat> before I came to school here, um, video editing was actually like my full-time job. Oh. Um, yeah. So I was working for um, a nonprofit um, called Visionaries, which actually my, my dad founded and I ended up working for them after I graduated undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of like worked my way up to being a video editor with them. Um, and so they were uh, making like documentaries about other nonprofits. <laughs> um, so basically we would like profile the work of, of different organizations. Uh, but anyway, so video editing was like this thing that I had become really proficient at in like a very professional and specific way. Um, 
And so once I got into art school, I knew that I was going to like start integrating that into my practice in some way, but it started to take like a bunch of different forms. And I think now I actually really think of video editing as like a kind of collage. And I think there's a lot of people throughout like art history of who have sort of come to that same conclusion, which is super interesting to me that like um, the early parts, the early parts of like, theory of film were deeply intertwined with like the movements who were pioneering collage. Um, and so that's one of the things that continues to make it interesting for me that like, not only is this overlap in my mind, but it's also like something that's been acknowledged um, as like, yeah, like a deep part of film. Yeah. It's so interesting. I have like very rudimentary film editing skills like mostly mm -hmm. iMovie and Final Cut. I've taken mm -hmm. a bunch of like professional level classes in Final Cut. And like what's interesting to me is when you think about like the timeline, like a video timeline and how it, it is like blocks of static images and you arrange them around and you're thinking very much like, oh, I'm gonna put this image here, that image there. I don't know. In my mind that kind of maps maybe a little bit to this idea of collage i don't know <laughs> mm -hmm. that sounds totally, exactly sure. like i mean i think it's also like you know taking things that are inherently like fragmented from each other and yeah. building something that feels cohesive out of them um which is the thing that's been like interesting to me about collage um but i think it's also kind of scratches the same itch as like editing and getting like a really an edit that feels cohesive. Yeah. Um, in your bio, I was really fascinated to read this. You say that your work is um, really heavily influenced by a um, background in religious studies when you were in an mm -hmm. undergraduate um, course of study. And I was just kind of curious how you came to study that as an undergrad. Yeah. So, um, I came into, so I actually, I went to undergrad um, at Hampshire College in Western Mass. Um, and I think the educational environment there, uh, I mean, it's known for really letting you kind of explore freely. I mean, there's no grades. Um, after a certain amount of time, there's no required classes. Um, and I came in as like a very... I guess like <laughs> existential and curious, uh, teenager. Um, I was like really, I think, you know, like a lot of teenagers are concerned with like the meaning of life. And, um, I think it really has a lot to do with, um, my upbringing, which was somewhat religious, but I was raised by, uh, two people who were raised Catholic and excommunicated from the Catholic church, one of which became an atheist and the other is still pretty religious. And so, oh, wow. um, sort of, yeah, growing up through that, that process sort of made me have a lot of conflicting feelings about religion. Um, I, I don't know. Conflicting is the <laughs> word, actually. I feel like I had a lot of negative feelings about religion. Yeah. Um, and then when I was growing up on Cape Cod, I had 
this like really strong connection to nature there. And I think having this sort of like thing that I couldn't really describe in any, uh, any other ways than like spiritual uh, connection with the place that I grew up was difficult to reconcile with the way that I felt about religion. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's something that I still think about all the time, like, um, what the difference between like that direct spiritual feeling that I think we're all, we all have the capacity to feel and the thing that religion has become, which is like this set of, um, you know, rules and dogmas and traditions and things that don't necessarily, um, always feel good or beneficial to our lives. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. It's a very long yeah. answer. No, that's a, that's that, yeah. that 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 is a fascinating background. That um, and I have to say, I've, I've told this to Stomping Jen before. Like, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I'm incredibly attracted to the spirituality of Catholicism, mm -hmm. and like, I find the imagery in it incredibly powerful and moving, and the stories like. I don't know. They just strike me like right. here and it, but I'm not a, again, I don't, I'm not a believer and I'm not yeah. a believer, but I like somehow still connect to all of that in a very spiritual way. I feel the same way. Um, and I, I mean, I wasn't raised Catholic, but like literally all of my family members, um, who were born before me were raised Catholic or are still Catholic. Um, and so I don't know. I feel that same connection at like aesthetically to um, like the imagery of Catholicism. Um, and I think part of my practice is almost like trying to pull those things out and like recontextualize them in a way that feels like more direct and fulfilling and um leaves behind the things or maybe like re uh, arranges the things that I feel negatively about in a way that critiques it and the things that like, I feel like it's led to in our society or that like I connect with um, like contemporary issues in politics or American culture. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, it does. And I just, I want to pause and just tell people as we're beginning to talk about some of your pieces here shortly and some of your work, I want people to kind of pause this and go to your website. It's MikeyMosher.com and uh, browse around and look at Mikey's works. Um, we're going to reference a bunch of them. And, you know, as we're talking about the pieces, I'll encourage everyone listening just to pause, go look at the pieces, like then come back to this conversation, right? Just so you can get a sense of what we're talking about. Um, that's a good thing about a podcast. So you can always right. pause. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so definitely, definitely do that as we're going along. If you're finding yourself a little lost or disconnected from the things we're talking about, definitely go look at uh, Mikey's website. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about Mikey is um, this idea of spiritual qualities and mm. some of the, um, the structures in our lives, in our life. Um, yeah. and, um, so <clears throat> you mentioned nature and I'm kind of curious, like where you see spirituality in nature and like what you pull out of nature in a spiritual sense. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, 
a lot of my feelings on that really uh, are rooted in um, the place where I grew up and the experiences I had growing up on Cape Cod, spending a really like big amount of time, like, um, like riding my bike by the ocean and walking around in the woods. And um, I feel like that um, part of my adolescence was like, um really in contrast with my experience like in public school <laughs> um you know like i feel like i really felt like the sort of sterile environment of the schools i was going to was like this polar opposite to um the experiences that i was having like with my friends out in the woods mm-hmm. <laughs> um and like that i think felt really like um important and enriching and um I think it like I also had some people around me who were able to help me like process those feelings and like really build this relationship with I don't know like a deeper level of my consciousness I feel like that I feel like is still really impactful on the way that I just like interact with the world in general now and the way that I think of the world around me. Um, so I think it's hard to, hard to say exactly what it is, but I think in general, I feel like, um, we as human beings are like inextricably connected with nature that we are like part of this one coherent system that we're like, inseparable from each other um and that we have the ability to like strengthen that connection in some ways um and share that connection with others and I feel that way because I've experienced it directly and I think like there's uh I think I have a desire to like try to share that and foster that through my practice in some ways whether it's like the process of making it for me but i think more recently it's like really trying to communicate that in the in the experience of interacting with the work um in person yeah interesting and i think you're and we'll talk about this i think i think you've been successful at it and I'll, i'll tell you why in a little bit um Go ahead, Stumpy Jen. No, I was just going to say it's very reminiscent of a recent conversation that we just had. Uh, which one? Um, with an, another guest that we just had about talking about nature. Oh, right. Spirituality <laughs> and nature. Yeah, we, ta- we talked to uh, Dave Ironman, who is a shamanic coach. Um, yeah. That was pretty oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, thank you for reminding me of that, Stumpy yeah. Jen. Um, uh, Mikey, the other thing you talk about are the the. Sp- you know, there are spiritual qualities um, that you explore and are interested in in relation to capitalism in media. And like for a while, I was kind of sitting with that, like trying to think, what does that mean? And then like something popped into my mind, this article I read like a few years back about how work has become the new religion mm-hmm. for, for a lot of people, right? Like yeah. that is where they find like their meaning in their self and of course there are like the capitalist forces behind most of our work these days mm-hmm. and is that sort of what you're getting at when you're talking about the, the spiritual mm-hmm. qualities of capitalism or is it something else well i think um 
for better or for worse, I feel like I've sort of set up this dichotomy in in my head between spirituality and religion. And I feel like I'm sort of still deconstructing whether or not that's like a valid distinction because I feel like it's way more nuanced than that. But I think what religion really is, is not just this set of rules and doctrines and dogmas, but it's a set of rules and doctrines and dogmas that feed you the sensation of spiritual connection. And I think that's the reason that's that religion as like a system in, and I think like when we talk about religion, I think we're often really talking about like Christianity and Catholicism rather than religion in general. So um, I think in, in Western culture, um, those, I think like when the Protestant reformation happened, when society slowly became secularized over the course of hundreds of years, as capitalism started to become the, the dominant, um, driving force of culture i think the the carrot on the end of the stick changed from being uh an afterlife um spiritual fulfillment in the afterlife a connection with god and it became material success or you know um just money in general commodities um status and i think that's kind of where we're at now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, mass media plays like a sort of um, analogous role to like the clergy in mm-hmm. like Renaissance Catholicism mm-hmm. in that it's constantly reinforcing that set of power structures, um, whether it's like, a big conspiracy or if it's just the way that it is, it doesn't really matter because the outcome is that it's reinforcing that um, set of circumstances, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. Question. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> do you read, do you read Neil Gaiman at all? I feel like I've heard that name, but I don't think I've read Neil Gaiman. Okay. Um, so he wrote a book called American Gods which explores mm-hmm. that very thing that you were just talking about. Okay, interesting. Um, to a degree, yeah. I mean, they made it into an awful TV series on stars. Um, <laughs> oh, wait. What is the, the, sh- the series called again? American Gods. Uh, yeah, American Gods. I feel like Gods. I have heard of that. Yeah. But. yeah, yeah. You might be interested in it, as just as an aside, because yeah. it really connects to kind of what you were just talking about. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely check that out. So one of your pieces, and I absolutely... Um, was really sitting with it today. I was looking at it. It's called Customer Obsession. Mm-hmm. And um, this is, um, and in course, correct me if I'm describing it wrong. This is my impression is like just a, a completely naive observer of your kind of work, right? I'm not a, I'm stomping Jen will tell you, I'm not an art historian. I'm not anybody who knows anything really about um, art. Um, it looked like a kind of like a, um, a video kind of collage to me, like a moving collage <laughs> that um, uh, pictures Jeff Bezos and uh, kind of like sprinkling money around. And he's got these robotic arms and there's a, um, there's an audio clip of an anti-union training video playing beneath <laughs> it all. And 
I was sitting there enjoying your piece so much in light of the recent Amazon Union um, victory that we just saw mm-hmm. happen like a week and a half ago. And in full disclosure, I, I'm a union president. In, oh, my, awesome. in my real job. So, <laughs> um, That's great. I, uh, I am a big, obviously a big fan and proponent of organized labor. And, um, I just, I loved watching your video. And I guess what I'm saying is I love a piece like that because it was made at a time and it probably, if I had watched it two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I would have had a very different experience with it than watching it today for the first time, right? Like it almost became um, a celebratory piece of work to me, like watching Mm -hmm. it today. I don't know, like, I just didn't know if you had any thoughts or reflections on that piece of work. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you asked me about that because I've been thinking about that piece, obviously, over the past week or so um, and how exactly like you said, it it reads differently now. and I, I, I wonder about this because I wonder like um, if it makes more or less sense to show it publicly now um, because it it's being perceived in a way that I didn't necessarily make it to be perceived, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. Um, but um, I made that when Jeff Bezos was still like the acting CEO of Amazon um, when I was thinking a lot about like what the role of billionaires are in our society in the context of all the stuff that we were just talking about, like if you were to draw this analog between, um, like, you know, the height of like Renaissance, um, Catholicism and contemporary billionaires, like what, role would they hold other than like you know um like gods or angels or something like that they're like um you know beyond human in their ability to wield power um which is obviously i think terrible (laughs) like i think that's objectively a bad thing and now they're Um, literally leaving the planet right right, and like ascending to these literally ascending to these celestial heights exactly yeah (laughs) and i think there's just like a a poetry to that that i think is like um maybe a little bit too obvious but i feel like it's worth expressing you know um and that's really what um was behind that piece like just wanting to um also like just mock the powerful I feel like is always a worthwhile thing to do um but yeah I I I think now um it can be seen as a celebratory piece in a way um Mm -hmm. like you said and I kind of like that maybe even more than what it was before because before it felt a little futile I guess like you know, I'm just some random artist, like making fun of Jeff Bezos, but now it feels like, um, we have more of a reason to shove it in his face, (laughs) you know? Um, which is great. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Is this a common challenge for you as an artist who works in a medium, um, that's kind of, I guess maybe all art to some degree is fixed, but a video like that, like, do you frequently 
are you frequently forced to confront like the meanings of your work over time and grapple yeah. with that? For sure. It's something I thought about a lot, especially when I was doing hand cut stuff, because um, at that time I was really trying to respond to things that were happening. And I think the end of the Trump presidency was kind of like a paradigm shift for my practice because my practice really came to um, this like very specific sensibility and style and like level of absurdity in a time where I feel like that was super appropriate. Um, and I think not that I feel like um, Joe Biden has like fixed everything, but I feel like there was just this level of like constantly in your face absurdity that I felt like I needed to like sort through every day in order mm. to feel like I had a grip on reality. Um, and I think my collage practice was the thing that did that for me, or like at least sometimes did that for me. And so like, I found myself like, collaging as a way of like expressing and working through the absurdity of like specific events in the news. Um, mm -hmm. And it felt unsustainable after a little, a little while because there was just always something. Um, and actually like one of the, really like the last large scale uh, hand cut collage I did was this piece called uh, a quilt for your lungs, mm -hmm. which was, um, I did it like in January, 2021, and it's basically like, um, a farewell to, to 2020. Um, it's like, I mean, I can, you know, you can direct people to, to check it out for yeah. more, um, for more context, but basically it was like me reaching this inflection point where it was like right after the insurrection at the Capitol. And I was like, how could things get? more absurd than than they are right now mm -hmm. um i mean obviously they always can but i think that was like the breaking point when i realized like i can't keep up and it was like an expression of the, the lack of being able to keep up and like the last ditch effort to find order in that process yeah i'm looking at the piece now and I, again like mikey said i we encourage you to go pause this go look at it i mean it's an intense piece um, there's are, the, a, are these images recreated or are they, the, are they the same that you manipulated? Are they I'm trying? I'm looking um, at it. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. Do you mean like the, <clears throat> the different images throughout the collage? Yeah. Yeah. So each like individual triangle is like a separate piece of paper. Okay. Um, so like I made this, um, basically like uh like this lattice drawn onto the paper mm -hmm. and did basically like a color by number sort of thing where like i picked um spots in each little square right that would be a set of like eight colors Got and it. then distributed that pattern throughout the whole piece wow and then organized the individual um little triangles in different in those different colors and then place them throughout the collage wow so there there's nothing uh duplicated here it's all different right yeah oh that's intense 
Yeah. All right, I'm going to put it down. Yeah. No, it was just, very labor intensive. Yeah. I could imagine. Um, and I can, I can like, I can kind of almost like feel from this that it's like the culmination of a, of an, uh, epic you know like of, of yeah. an emotional epic that we were a lot of us like felt like we were going through you know um yeah totally and like to your point like trump was like an incredible in addition to uh being an authoritarian um uh anti-constitutional uh, piece of shit those are my words yeah. i mean he was exhausting like like mm-hmm. you said he was like in your face all of the time and like you could never get away from it and like even though like you know biden has his issues like there's a relief in the silence like coming out of that office Mm -hmm. and it's like it's not this like the 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 pause in the uh gaslighting that you felt like every (laughs) single freaking day it's just not a constant radio stream of insanity Uh like right you know and yeah I totally agree. Um, um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think going back to what we were talking about earlier about like this, um, the religiosity of like the system that we're currently in now, I feel like the thing that to me made those four years so unique was Trump's ability to like, um, light up that potential in like this extremely bizarre way, like to fully tap into the, like um, the sensationality of the like media Mm -hmm. uh, apparatus that had already been set up and just like exploit it to like this incredible degree. Um, And I think that's part of what I was, I think, trying to capture in from a lot of different angles. And, and it was usually not directly about Trump, but just like this heightened level of absurdity that became commonplace during yeah. that time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that explanation. I have um, another technical question. Yeah, go ahead. How large is that piece? Um, that piece is 28 by 40 inches. Okay. So what's that big. like? It's like two, like two and a half and, yeah. by three and a half feet ish. Yeah. yeah. I think. Okay. That's a big piece. That's big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that piece, is that piece in your exhibition looking at, looking through? So let's it talk, is, yeah. let's talk a little bit about the exhibition kind of as a, mm-hmm. as a set of things. Like how did the, I, um, I hate it. I'm not going to ask it that way. Um, how, how did looking at looking through come together for you? Like as an artist? Yeah. Well, so the way that I thought about it was, um, trying to do a couple things, but mainly I wanted to like kind of chart the journey from like that last big, um, hand cut piece to um, like my latest projects, which were didn't involve any hand cut collage, but were still like deeply rooted in like the ideas about collage that I had built up during that time. Um, And so it was really me trying to um, 
make sense of that arc and conceptualize it and um, sort of think back on the connections between the themes that I was working with and make sense of them, I guess. Okay. Um, now, physically, is looking at, looking through, like, in a studio space? Like, where is it situated? And how, if people are yeah. in the Chicago area, like, how do they come and see it? So, unfortunately, it's it's no longer up, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that was my, my MFA thesis exhibition. Okay. So, oh, nice. Um, so that was at the gallery of the school that I go to. Okay, but we could um, see we could see these things online. We could see all of these right, pieces exactly, online yeah. and so experience them there. Yep, mm-hmm, it's heavily documented, and I'm actually currently working on shopping around a proposal to have it in another gallery here in Chicago. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. Well, let's talk. I want to talk about uh, one of the pieces in 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 looking at looking through again, people go to the website and look at this, um, uh, open sky. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us a little bit about that piece and how it came about for you. I, I, this is an absolutely fascinating piece. Thank you. Yeah. So, so that piece, um, I think like the, the sort of seed for it was, um, after the end of my first semester in this program, actually like around the same time that I made that last big collage, I had like built this, um, this wood structure in my studio, which was basically like a backlit projector screen. And it was really like my first time ever building something out of wood by myself. And the way that it worked, um, which I should put it like a diagram or something up on the site because it's like kind of hard to just explain verbally, but basically there's the wood structure and there's a shelf on it and a projector sits on that, projects into a mirror, and then that image is bounced onto the back of a paper screen. And so you stand in front and because the image has been reversed once by the mirror, and reversed again by projecting on the back of the paper. Standing in front of it, you see the original image, mm-hmm. but you, by interacting with it, walking around it, aren't project or you're not uh, interrupting the projector image, right? By uh, yeah, and so that um, principle of like projecting is kind of what was the the seed of that project, Open Sky, and. Once I got to Chicago, I knew I wanted to sort of like replicate that in some way, in a way that felt like more refined and like fleshed out. And so um, it started with like the middle structure, which is like this arch version of that um, that piece. And um, I ended up sort of thinking about it um, as like an altarpiece. And the, the original version of it too, was actually just a way of, um, displaying the digital scans of my hand cut collages. And, um, that process of like trying to, um, decide what, was the final product of those collages, whether it was like the physical collage 
or like the documentation of it, the scan of it, which was often like super high quality and had like a very different quality. It's the thing that you're seeing usually when you're looking at them online um, was what basically led to me trying to like experiment with different ways of showing them. And it was specifically, I think, because we were in the middle of a pandemic and like I didn't really have a way of like bringing people to see them in person. And yeah. so um, a lot of the way, like really the only way that people were seeing them were in these like digital reproductions. And so really that process is what led to all of the different experiments that I did during this program. Um because it was like this gateway through um, the digital representation of the, the physical thing. Um, but um, to get like a little bit more specific about the open sky project, once I was done with um, my first year in this program, which was remote and I had a studio in East Hampton, Massachusetts, um, I, <laughs> I had bought, this like um high video recorder which is like you know like a 90s like mm -hmm. um like tape video recorder yeah um, a super like eight the right? same super eight yeah. sorry so is it super eight right that's what they call it uh it's Not like, like after super eight oh. and after vhs it's like the last thing before they like went digital like okay. fully digital basically okay um and it was like the same, pretty much the same recorder that like, like my home movies as a child were filmed on. And so I had this like sort of nostalgic connection to the physical object. And what I started doing was just recording videos and like carrying it around with me, like pretty much everywhere I went when I was in Western Mass. And it was like starting to be spring and summer. And like anyone who lives there knows like that can be like, extremely magical and mm -hmm. like i don't know i think i was sort of also trying to document that quality of the place that i'd spent a lot of time in because i knew i was leaving for the first time like really leaving massachusetts for the yeah. first time for a long time and so those videos ended up um i ended up starting to collage those um and that sort of snowballed over a long period of time into what is the content of that open sky piece. Um, and so it consists of like a lot of videos of the sky, of clouds, of the grass. Um, and um, the other like major element, I'll just talk about this briefly, but um, was these experiments that I was doing in my studio with that, that projector screen that I had built. So um, basically what I was doing was I had hooked up this camera to that projector and was filming the screen that was projected on. Yep. <laughs> so there was this feedback loop between the screen, the projector, the mirror and the camera. And um while I was working on another larger piece, I would just sort of mess with this weird apparatus that I had set up and like do these weird experiments where I would like put my hands in between the camera and the screen. And like, um, I didn't really have like a, 
um, an idea of what it was going to be in the long term. And neither did I with um, those other videos that I was shooting. But it ended up being just this big collection of images and videos that I was able to work from as a backlog to to collage from in video. Um, and yeah, so that's a very, very long-winded answer. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Like pieces, yeah. yeah, again, people people go look at this on Mikey's website. It's the Open Sky product uh, project, and there's a video you can watch. And um you describe the the main frame and there's three kind of like video frames two mm-hmm. two on the sides are like these circles and the main one is this arched um like you called it an altar i think mm-hmm. and it very much evokes like just the physical structure of it evokes this sense for me i'm only speaking for me i'm not saying this is what you intended mm-hmm. for me it invokes this like incredible sense of spirituality just mm-hmm based the physical structure of the thing like mm-hmm. so i'm engaging this already being like wow this is going to be something and then when you watch the video um and some of this is in your kind of like narrative i think description of the intent of the piece um but i very much felt this it it, it is a it is a creation and apocalypse story kind of mm-hmm. you know um all, all in one, and um, there's this like haunting music behind it too. Like, did you write that music? Um, I did. Yeah, yeah, that was very well done. Um, and um, part of what you're part of what you're talking about, I think, in this piece is um, the. Um, in, I think you say this in your description: the the self destructive qualities of of the the age we live in, of the the human age, um, and so. I'm kind of curious, um, what do you see as some of these self-destructive qualities that we have? I yeah. mean, there's some, there's some obvious, obvious ones I'm sure you'll mention, mm-hmm. but. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it really is, um, an ecological thing, you know, like, um, it really is something about, um, climate change about, you know, global catastrophe and sort of dealing with that existential threat in a spiritual context, um, in a way that isn't trying to sell you this guilt that it's your fault or that you should be doing more, but sort of like trying to face it in like a way that doesn't feel the burden of like um optimism (laughs) you know i think Mm -hmm. um a lot of the time the conversation about climate change sort of devolves into whether or not you're being defeatist um, in acknowledging the the like likely future that we're facing, um, and so I felt like I wanted to like communicate that, um, and also like bring in, I guess, like my sort of like deeper existential feelings about like how small and insignificant we are 
in the grander scheme of things and how like I feel like it I was really trying to like tap into this like deeper energy of like the both like violent and deeply regenerative power of the earth. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. Um, I mean that, this like we will be eclipsed by that regardless. Yeah, this this doesn't um this doesn't feel like um a doomsaying type of thing. It it mm -hmm. like like you're saying, like for me, I'm again I'm only speaking about my reaction to this. Uh it's it's beautiful. Um and I'm definitely picking up on that sense of um uh potential destruction and renewal, right? And, and I, like I wanted to ask you just like your kind of your own thoughts about this like do you think we're heading for some kind of apocalypse? And on the other side of that, and I see this as a beautiful thing, like there's renewal after mm -hmm. such a thing. Right. I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's hard for me to say what will happen because like, I'm not a climate scientist, yeah. but I think it was more the fact that like I absorb that information um, like when you hear things like that, the, that a lot of the earth is going to become uninhabitable and uninhabitable within like a hundred years or that, like, we really only have, you know, like less than a decade to reverse climate change. Like, I, I mean, maybe it's succumbing to like a hopelessness that's like purposefully being propagated by the media. And maybe it's like fatalistic in that sense. Um, but I, it felt super real to me. And I think it affects people around me in a real measurable way. Um, that like dread that comes with just taking that at face value that like we may be, some of the last people and like, I may be one of the last people to like experience the connection that we talked about earlier with nature um, yeah. without the like threat that that same force is going to destroy you in your lifetime, I guess. Yeah. I was going to say like, if, if something like a super volcano, which we wouldn't foresee or an asteroid mm -hmm. doesn't do it. And we're on this, trajectory i think you're right like people's relationship to nature is going to change it's it's gonna mm -hmm. it might be a thing that is scarier and more potentially um terrifying on a day-to-day -day basis yeah you know and I, mean? I think it's already becoming unstable for a lot of people yeah um even in like very subtle ways like you know i think about like um when like what like when i was a kid growing up on the cape like i would go to the beach and i would always see this specific kind of jellyfish right <laughs> and i would always see like little critters around in the water and now i go there and i just don't see anything like mm, it's yeah. just a shifted ecosystem already. And there's great white sharks. Now. I was just going to, it's just <laughs> thinking that like great like, white. Yeah. You could get eaten now. 
<laughs> yeah, like that. That's like a very direct, like, yeah. a manifestation of exactly the thing that I'm talking about, which is like the thing that, like, within my lifetime, what like has shifted be- from being this like, you know, rich and gentle force to like probably manifesting it's the, the fact that it's being threatened and um i don't know i feel like trying to communicate that in a bunch of different ways yeah it's so interesting you mentioned that and i like i'm thinking of an example here like in western massachusetts where we live like when spring comes around the first thing I begin to think about is it's tornado season. What? Uh, 20 years ago, we didn't experience tornadoes on a regular basis out here. Now, it's not unusual for there to be a tornado warning. You know, we get a couple yeah. get a couple every spring of, you know, potentially severe um really harmful weather events. Um yeah, I mean that's a change in the last twenty years. Yeah, totally. Um, all right, I wanted to ask you about another piece um, in in sure. the in the looking at looking through um, exhibition, which people can go see online. It's up there, so go check this out. It's the as above, so below piece. Um, mm-hmm. So, I just want you to tell us a little bit about that, and I'm I'm really interested in that the technical aspect too of how you put that together using Photoshop and after effects. And and was that a new um, process for you? Is that something you tried for the first time on this piece? Yeah. So that, that was a super new process for me. I mean, I think it was sort of like the first, or I mean, it was one of the first um, big projects where I really tried to like mash together my expertise into things that I felt were really separate before that point, which is like hand cut collage and video editing. And so um, the way that that piece came together was um, I was working from um, the same like physical archive of images, which are all just like collected from magazines and, um, And, you know, usually I'll just cut them out and like arrange this um, image on paper and and paste them together there. Um, But this time I basically um, instead decided that like that arrangement process would be completed um, in Photoshop. So I would scan all of the individual images um, and then um, arrange them in Photoshop, which would allow me to do things like, you know, uh, resize images, which would, I had never been able to do before. Um, and like, I think I had actively avoided doing it because it felt like I was like, um, you know, building up this very specific kind of practice up until that point. Um, and so I had like completed that part of the process, which was really just like me letting myself go wild with, you know, digital collage. Um, and I was like talking to my advisor at the time, um, who's an artist named Jan Tichy, who is like one of my uh, professors here at the school. Um, and that's uh, J-A-N-T-I-C-H-Y. Um, and he's a, a really interesting artist. Um, and he really like helped me 
work through a lot of the stuff that I was thinking about with my practice at that time and continued to after that semester. Um, but um, basically what I ended up doing with his help was to um, animate the entire um, digital collage and in individual sections and like as a whole um, create this like looping um, video version of that collage. Did this challenge you and change you as a collage artist in, in a way maybe yeah. you weren't anticipating? It honestly really did actually, because um, I think, you know, with the hand cut work, one, I feel like the process involves this thing, which since this project, I've like made a concerted effort to like bring back in, in other ways, which is the, the, the aspect of like physical biofeedback between you and the thing that you're working on. Um, and like with the hand cut stuff, it was like literally just cutting out the pieces of paper, you know, looking at them, um, you know, placing them on the paper and having that like tactile relationship with the images um as objects rather than just images um and so um with this project i i don't know i kind of felt like deeply alienated from that aspect of my practice while it was happening <sighs> because it was all happening on the computer after a certain point. Yeah. And, um, it was like a deeply ambitious project and it was something that like, I would come to my studio at seven in the morning and work until nine o'clock at night on, mm -hmm. um, it was like that intensive, like, just sitting in front of my computer editing um, and also like learning this kind of editing that I had never done before. Um, and I mean, <laughs> I feel kind of conflicted about it now because like, I like the piece a lot and I feel like it's super indicative of like where I was in my practice of, at the time. And I feel like in that way, it's a really successful piece but I feel like it also kind of embodies like everything that I'm trying to avoid in my practice <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> uh, what are some of those things that you'd like to avoid? Well, one is like a, a process thing, which is, I feel like I really, the thing I it made me realize that the thing that I really, or one of the things that I really love about my process is just working with stuff with my hands, you know, yeah. um, like that, that aspect of making just really like got, you know, taken out of the, the process completely. And I think that isn't just something that's like um, physically gratifying. I think it's something that plays into the way that you actually approach a project in a way that's kind of hard to describe. Um, but, um, so there's that aspect of it, the sort of physical aspect of it, but I think there's also, um, this aspect of restraint that I feel like is really important to the mm -hmm. way that I approach work now. 
which is, I feel like up until that project, I was convinced that I needed to say as much as possible in every piece. And I think it's, you know, really what we were talking about with that, uh, a quilt for your lungs, which is like, I felt this need to, um, express the level of like information density that felt um super present at the moment and i think that a quilt for your lungs piece marked the point where i felt like i can no longer achieve that by just cutting up pieces of paper um and i think the uh as above so below was like me like not yet realizing that I didn't need to do that (laughs) and pulling out all the stops to do it. Um, And I think, you know, it's still interesting because it's so absurd, not just in the content, but like the amount of content. Um, And I still feel like it's not necessarily too much, um, but I feel like it's, more than is actually effective necessarily to say at once um, in that it's asking maybe too much of my audience to, I don't know, to, to sit with something so didactic in that yeah. it's like saying a bunch of specific things um, in like a way that's like reading a, a book mm-hmm. rather than like, saying a bunch of like sensory things in a way that's like listening to music, you know? Yeah. Um, Mm. Yeah. And one of the things in the, in the description of the piece that you talk about is it's, it's talking about um, ideas around capitalism becoming a new religion. And we were talking about Mm -hmm. this earlier in our conversation. I'm just kind of curious to like maybe tie up that bow like, um, how do you think, how do you think that impacts us as human beings when we are yeah. replacing the, the, the spirituality of religion with this, the mm. spirituality of capitalism? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's something that's sort of imposed on us. Um, but I think, you know, when we understandably embrace that you know embrace that like our fulfillment is going to come from you know just like material um success or status or power or any of those things um or that like um that work in itself is like fulfilling because you're um, just because you're doing something. I don't know if that really says it, but like, I think that we lose touch with um, something about being human that is inherently fulfilling. Um, I don't, I don't think I'm really doing that justice, but I think, I think you are. I think you are. And what's interesting is I, is I, is I think about that and I engage with the piece and some of your other work. It's like, I know 
And again, I'm only talking about my own experience with, with your pieces and, and these ideas. It's like, I know, right. That like, I know conceptually, right. If I buy that thing, it's not going to give me sustained fulfillment, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to feel it in the moment. I'm going to feel good. Then there's going to be another thing. Like I know that my job, no matter how hard I work for them, right? No matter what I do, if I quit or I get fired, they're going to find somebody else next week. And Mm -hmm. in three weeks, no one will remember me. Like, like I know all of this stuff, like cognitively yet, Mm -hmm. um, yet I'm told and fed, I believe, and I've, and I've bought into on some level, I've not been able to overcome yet this narrative coming from the media and other places that I must do these things. And it's like, for me, Stomping Jen, I'm engaged in Mikey. I'm engaged in this constant existential battle around these things. Mm -hmm. This stuff keeps me up at night. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, a big part of, um, I think a big part of it for me is like specifically technology and social media. Um, and I, you know, I, I think like something that I, I have sort of tried to incorporate in these other projects is specifically like the, um, sort of like spiritual power of screens and how like, um, how light specifically is being used <laughs> as like this uh, tool of capitalism, this sort of like spiritually um, enticing tool to keep us like engaged. Like if you think about TVs or phones, like and how those are sort of the driving things that keep us tethered to right. uh, to capitalism, whether it's like our work email or social media or the news or any of those things, like. I sort of think about that a lot in the light-based pieces that I'm doing now and how I can approach digital images and like um, displaying them in a way that is, um, that feels less corrupted by that quality, I guess. Um, Yeah. I I just had a crazy idea pop into my head. Um, Do you think there's a connection? Uh, All right. Glass. I want to go with this idea of glass. We're attracted mm-hmm. to glass. And I was just thinking when you were talking about stained glass and the property yeah. in churches and houses of worship mm-hmm. and the effect of the light that stained glass has passing mm-hmm. through it and the people sitting in the church. And you're almost mesmerized in that space by the, mm-hmm. the way the light is transformed. And somehow mm-hmm. I was in my mind just like drawing a little dotted line to what you were talking about, about screens being spiritual experiences too. Yeah, totally. I I think that's exactly it. And I think that is something that I, that immediately came out of that first experiment with that backlit projection screen. When I was projecting the handcut collages on them, they transformed from being these flat, paper images to to like a stained glass window they were like emitting light and color rather than reflecting it which is like an inherently different thing um and it's like something that i think we deeply take for granted that we have access to um 
because it's something that's really only existed as like an accessible thing that you can do to turn a flat image into a glowing image is like something that took us like <laughs> hundreds of thousands of years to be able to do. And yeah. now we can just do it whenever we want. Like, um, and so part of the, the thing that I'm trying to do with these light based things is like recontextualize that ability in a way that one isn't using digital screens because I feel like we inherently turn off that like phenomenological interest in our brain when we see a digital screen, because we're so hyper accustomed to using them. And, and two, like, um, using materials that I feel like we don't usually associate with digital technology, specifically wood and paper. Yeah. Um, and so that was like a huge part of thinking about open sky and about um, the thing that we haven't talked about yet, which is the, the stereographic light boxes, mm-hmm. um, interior lens. Um, so yeah, that's, that's something that I think about all the time now, which is like, how can I like sort of harness the power of screens, which I feel like are this driving aesthetic force behind like this religion of capitalism in a way that isn't like necessarily directly talking about that, but like talking about whatever I want, you know? Yeah. I love that. Um, Let's talk a little bit about interior lens. Tell us about that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a really fun project um, to sort of figure out. And it was like a puzzle for me to um, that really, it started at the, um, the Brimfield flea market. Mm-hmm. Have you guys ever been? Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Out here in Massachusetts, yep. Brim- Brimfield, Massachusetts. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that, I don't know if you guys know, but it's like one of the largest flea markets in the world. Yeah. Um, and um, it's actually, I think my favorite place in the whole world. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's just my favorite thing ever. Like I absolutely love the Brimfield flea market. And flea markets in general. Um, there's another great one in Hadley, Mass. Yeah. In, uh, on Sundays in the summer that yeah. I love going to. Um, but so I was there, and this was like right after, um, you know, the, the mask restrictions were list- lifted for the first time yeah. in Massachusetts, and there was this sort of like, you know, um, something in the air that just like felt magical to go outside and be around people. Oh yeah. I remember <laughs> that. that. Yep. Yeah. So, um, the Brimfield flea market happened like a couple days after, um, that restriction was lifted. And I remember going there and just like feeling like, like I was in some kind of like fairy tale land, like walking around all these like bizarre objects. It's like really like in my element for me. Um, and um, I happened across this booth that had this huge collection of Viewmaster slides. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of them were like religious stories. Um, and like they were these like, um, staged photographs of like people acting out different scenes from the Bible. And I just was like immediately in love with them. Like it was just, it tapped into something 
And I think it tapped into something that we were just talking about, which is like the quality of um, light coming from images. Cause these are like backlit um, photo slides, um, which are just backlit by like ambient light. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it also tapped into like, you know, I had these as a kid, um, but I think there was something um, that struck me about these, which is that they were like significantly older than that. They were from like the early 1950s. And um, so I just started getting, well, one, I bought a bunch of them. <laughs> and I bought <laughs> of like course. a new master <laughs> slide viewer uh, that I, I took home with me and I was just like obsessed with it. And I started getting, um, super into stereography, which is basically like um, how those photographs are taken, which is usually with like a stereographic camera, um, which just has two lenses that are separated about the distance of your eyes. And they expose two photos at the same time from those slightly different angles. Okay. And so when you view those images and one of your eyes is exposed to each of the images and you know neither eye is seeing both of them that is what creates what's called like the stereoscopic effect and so that is how we see things in three dimensions um it just in the world and it's it basically replicates that effect um with photography and this is something that's been around since like the early 1800s, which I just think is fascinating. Like, I think that's one of the most interesting things about photography is that we have had like three-dimensional viewing technology since like the time that railroads were like yeah, coming yeah. at like, it was one of the um, it was one of the first um forms of porn. <laughs> stereographic oh, really? images. You know, that, okay, yeah. that, we'll get more into this later because um there's another piece in the show uh that's a lenticular print which is a similar kind of thing and I was just looking for vintage lenticular prints on eBay and like 90% of them are poor. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. It's, lenticular. It's yeah. Can of worms. Yeah. And, and I think and that's a whole other like probably conversation in podcast about like how um porn is like always on the leading edge of technology like whatever mm-hmm. it is like there is porn it's like leading it's the so way true. yeah and <laughs> anyway sorry to de- derail us with porn no 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 it's great it's great <laughs> um but yeah so anyway i i actually before i got those viewmaster slides and maybe it's it's fair to say that like this story goes back a little further um i had a stereographic camera for like a few years before I found those few master slides and I had taken photos with them. Um, but I had never actually looked at the photos in a stereograph viewer. Um, and so having that like prior knowledge of like how the system worked, I like really got back into it and started thinking about how I could integrate it into my practice. And so that um that was like right before i moved to chicago and so i brought those with me to chicago and i started working with them in this class that i was in which was a digital light projections class and it was taught by that same professor who like helped me through that big animation project and so um 
the first thing I ended up doing actually was building um, a projector that projected those slides um, from the Viewmaster. And it had two lenses and it would, one of the lights was red and one of the lights was blue. And you could look at the projected image with uh, like blue and red 3D glasses. Oh, wow. And you could see the three-dimensional effect. That's amazing. Um, yeah, that's something that maybe I should, you know, go back to at some point. But um, um, that ended up being like a, a stepping stone of like me sort of like keeping alive this interest in in stereography and and light and you know committing myself to figuring out a way to like uh bring that into my practice and so basically what i ended up deciding to do was build a, a stereograph viewer um and i figured that out like relatively quickly how to do that because um the principle of stereographic viewing is actually the exact thing that virtual reality is based on right. so vr viewers are stereograph viewers and that makes it even more interesting to me that like vr in principle is something that's based in like this 1800s technology um, and so this also ties into the exact same themes of like screens and digital technology and like the sort of, uh, phenomenological power of technology in our society and how it's being used, which I don't necessarily think is that interesting. And also is like objectively terrifying in the context of things like the metaverse. Right. Um, and so I really wanted to find a way to like, wedge my way into that conversation um and the way that it ended up happening was i went to this incredible store here in chicago which is called american science and surplus and it just they sell like a bunch of really weird stuff that is just like a surplus from like science experiments i don't really know where they get their stuff but they had these little um VR viewers that are meant for you to just slide your phone into. Right. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. So, like, those are actually pretty common now. Things like Google Cardboard are, right. like, pretty easy to find. And, like, these little viewers were, like, $3 a piece. Mm. And so I picked up a bunch of them. And I was, like, if I can format uh, one of the stereographic photos that I have taken for my phone, then I've made a stereograph viewer. Basically, all I have to figure out is how to do it without my phone. And I really quickly like reformatted um, one of those photos, a few of those photos that I took and just airdropped them to my phone and <laughs> slid my phone into the thing. And for the first time, was able to look at those photos in like an actual three-dimensional way. Oh, wow. And um so I was like chasing that high basically <laughs> yeah. um, throughout the process. Um, and for a while it, I, I had a hard time thinking of what the actual content was going to be, whether it was going to be things that I photographed, which is originally what I wanted to do, or if what it ended up being was these, um, these digital collages, which I can get into more, but basically that is uh, where it ended up. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I love that you um, 
when people go to MikeyMosher.com and look at this, um, the interior lens section, you have these viewers on a wall, like pictures of them, mm-hmm. I, and they're, they're you built these. I mean, they're beautiful. They're beautiful, <laughs> like so yeah, they're beautiful objects, like in and of themselves. They look like they could be like in a science fiction movie, right? Like, mm-hmm. so like they they are aesthetically beautiful. And like part of what I was thinking as you were talking to us about this is, um, yes, you're, you're concerned with issues um, about um, digital technology, media, and you're 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 working on pieces that have something to say about that. But you're also working with it too. Like mm-hmm. you're building these, like you're making this stuff like this mm-hmm. and you're using the technology as well as, um, having something to say about it too. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, in my mind that, that is, that is fascinating and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love this. Um, where, where do you get, sorry, where, where do you get these images from? Like, I know you said magazines, but like, do you like curate yeah. different yeah. So, um, well, first of all, like I, I should have an image of this on my website too. I don't know why I don't, but I have this, this crate, uh, which is like filled with, um, a bunch of folders basically, um, that I've been like curating and collecting for at this point, like four or five years. And so like some of those images have been in there that long. Some of them have been in there like a month, Mm -hmm. but basically like um, I will usually get like a lot of magazines, like, you know, like 20 at a time from like that are just like on eBay or like at uh, an estate sale or something like that. And, you know, I mean, at first it was literally, um, just like old national geographics. Like that was like my bread and butter for years. Um, and that's actually what got me started collaging when I was in high school. Um, my grandmother, and actually I'm having kind of a Eureka, Eureka moment right now, which maybe I can <laughs> come back to this, but basically my grandmother had, um, this big collection of national geographic magazines, which were just in my, my, parents basement when I was a kid and I came along them after um, my grandmother passed away and they just let me collage with them there were like there were probably like a hundred of them and um, so originally that was what I was working from and then I started branching out to things like Life Magazine old um, Scientific American are really interesting um, usually things to do with like technology or, um, American politics, um, wired magazine, um, international affairs or something like that. But yeah, it's like a wide range of different things. Most recently, my favorite thing is, um, eyewitness books, which were like a really big thing when I was a kid, they're basically just like, um, you know, like there'll be a topic like, just technology and it'll just be like a bunch of images they're, they're for kids mm-hmm. basically okay um but they were they were like mass produced in the 90s and there's like hundreds of different issues of them um but yeah like um a, a lot of different stuff and That's i so you know i'll get obsessed with one magazine and get a bunch of them for a while and 
So you literally just cut them out and catalog them? Oh yeah. So, so this crate that I have has probably like 30 categories and it'll be like, you know, Americana or like, um, you know, like geology, if it's like, you know, maps of like weird, like infographics of land or stuff like that. Um, uh, another one is like something like fire, like just images of fire. And then like, I have like 20, 30 folders of different things like that. And like, uh, when I'm going through magazines, usually I'll just like look for images that like stand out to me or like mm-hmm. immediately something comes to mind that I could use it for. And I'll like cut it out and just like slide it into one of those folders. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I've just been like building up that collection and that's usually what I work from when I'm doing hand cut stuff. And actually like that principle of having a backlog is like the thing that has fed all of these other parts of my practice that I try to adapt collage to, whether it's like video or things like found objects, like I work best when I have a lot of stuff to work from. And that has been like helpful to figure out um, with these other experiments. That's fascinating. Yeah. I do a similar thing for sound clips. Like I have this Mm -hmm. uh, sound library, like, so when I'm editing, I usually don't do this for conversations with guests, um, but when it, we do episodes with um, just Jen and I, I'll, I'll edit in funny sound effects, that sort of thing. But, you know, I have a hard disk with, you know, hundreds of sound effects saved on it. Yeah. And I all cataloged. Get, I just yeah. feel like I would get lost. So I like, sorry not to get into my process, but no, I like, I like get in, I like, you know, rip things out of magazines and like stack them up. And then when I want to actually make a piece, like I'll like look through all the images and just pull things yeah. out, which yeah. is not organized in any way, yeah. shape or form. I mean, it took me a really long time to get to that point too. Yeah. Like I spent probably like a decade just like having one folder and things were just in there. And yeah. then I think it was probably my girlfriend when we first met, I had like yeah. a couple of these big folders with like a bunch of stuff. And she was like, maybe you should organize that. And I was like, yeah. maybe I should. Yeah. It's <laughs> and, probably smart you know, because I have so many boxes of magazines yes. around the house and I'm sure Sonsi yeah. would love it if I would get rid of them. And, and I'm constantly <laughs> saying things like, boy, do we really need this box of magazines and I'm here? Like, just pretend like it's not there. <laughs> just like leave it alone. It's not there. It doesn't exist. I mean, I think the thing that I, I realized after I started trying to organize them is that it really like makes the process easier yeah. and more fun yeah. um, because like, you can more quickly be like, Oh, I have that image somewhere. Like I know where to find it. And like, I can, you can keep up the momentum without like searching through folders for like half an hour and like getting bored of the thing that you're working on. Yeah. I love it. Um, One last piece I wanted to ask you about Mikey was um, the interior castle. And I, this seemed really fascinating to me. And I was looking at the video of this on your website. So people go look at this. You're probably sick of hearing me say this, but um, you used a process um, you called 3d lenticular printing. Just tell Mm -hmm. us about, tell us about the piece and just that process that you used. Yeah. So um, I think most people have probably seen a lenticular print. Um, at some point it's usually, I mean, so there's a couple different kinds. Um, there's a kind where it's like an image 
and it, it flips between two different images based on the angle that you're looking at the thing. And it'll be on like advertisements or, you know, they were really big in the nineties for like things like movie posters or um, they even have them on like random, like notepads now. Um, so there's that kind that flips between two images. And then there's a kind that you're looking at, like basically a three-dimensional image. Um, and basically the way that it works is that there's this plastic film that goes over an image and it's made up of like hundreds of vertical things that are called lenticules. And those are basically lenses. And um, underneath that film is like an image that's formatted in this very specific way where um, each one of those, uh, those plastic uh, lenses is shown like a small strip of like a frame of an image from a specific angle. And so depending on where you're looking at the image, all of the different strips are showing you a different version of the image. So say that there is like an object and you take a picture of it from 10 different angles, depending on the way that the lenticular is formatted, you will move from side to side and get the illusion that you're moving around that object because you're being shown, not only are you being shown a different thing as you shift, but your two eyes are seeing something slightly different. So it's the same stereoscopic effect that we were talking about earlier, where you're being tricked into thinking that you're looking at something three-dimensional. And so the, the process of setting up that, um, that lenticular was actually the exact same process of as setting up the three-dimensional collages in the interior lens, which is basically like you have these separate layers of the collage. So you have like a, a Photoshop file and like the things that are on top are on one layer. The things that are in the middle are on another layer and they're stacked on top of each other. And then imagine those layers are like laid out in like 3d space like increasingly further away from you so Got like it. you have them sort of stacked up vertically and in like a basically like a 3d model on the computer you are able to move a vantage point of that of those layers so like you're moving like a virtual camera so that you can see um those layers from multiple different angles. This is getting complicated, but basically <laughs> you can export individual images that show you all of those different angles. Those can be then compiled into this really complicated um, kind of format, which I didn't do myself. This is something that I've allowed myself to outsource for the first time in my <laughs> artistic yeah. career. It's which a, was, I think, for the for the sake of my mental health. But, it's amazing to um, me that human beings were able to create something like that. I agree. I, <laughs> I agree. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful piece. I, I think people need to go and 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 make sure you go and look at this. Um, you know, the way it moves around and comes alive is just is fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, and that piece you were talking about. Um, kind of meditating on or having something to say about the relationship between death, capitalism and propaganda. Yeah. And we've talked, we've talked 
about each of these things a little bit here on this episode. I'm just curious, um, is, is there a way that you see um, these ideas all connected for us as humans? Yeah, I mean, I think um, for that piece in particular, um, well, for context, it started as a hand-cut collage. And in that collage were like actual uh, holograms, which is like an entirely different kind of 3D imaging. Um, but they were on the cover of National Geographic um, a few times. And so I had like these paper holograms that were that, that were in the collage. And then eventually I made the whole thing three-dimensional. But while I was working on it, I was um, listening to the audio book of this book called um, The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, which um, is basically about like the relationship between um, disaster, like global disaster, famine, um, natural disasters, things like coups, um, and the propagation of capitalism throughout the world. And, um, so I was working on this, this collage while like listening to this book and like thinking about like how, I mean, in a very general way, how capitalism thrives on like the like distraction that's created by suffering um how like because of the way that the media works in america and other capitalist countries like there is this spectacle that is created by death and suffering that is really often like a way for um you know, the power structures to come in and impose capitalism um, in situations like Katrina or in, you know, coups in South America or in Iraq. And these are like the examples that are used in the book. Right. Um, basically that disaster is seen as an opportunity by people who want to gain power mm. in other places. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's something that I, I think, was trying to evoke in the piece, but I'm not sure if that was necessarily successful. And I think the piece is more um, of creating like a kind of satirical altarpiece in like devotion to this like system of capitalism um, and like its relationship to death as a way of just criticizing that um yeah. i guess yeah 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 i mean it's such a it's a it's a deep it's a deep piece like there's so many visual elements in it like you can really get lost in this like i'm, I'm doing it now i apologize i'm falling <laughs> into the piece i'm looking no, at okay. it and the thing that that i'm noticing i just have to point this out is there's kind of like an altar-like structure in the middle of it that's similar mm-hmm. to the altar in the open sky piece we were talking yeah. about early on. I'm mm-hmm. just seeing this here, and I'm uh, totally and, and I don't know. I think I was subconsciously making that connection before I mm-hmm. voiced it out loud. Anyways, um, uh, folks, go look at this stuff on the yeah. website. Jam. I mean, that's what I like about your aesthetic is the the multitude of visual elements that you can get lost in. I like, I like, I really am drawn to that kind of aesthetic. Um, cause, cause collage can be very minimalistic and this mm-hmm. is considerably not. 
<laughs> minimalist <laughs> at all, which I love. I do. I love, you know, there's so many Thank different so ranges of, you know, collages and yeah, you know, way people do approach it. So, yeah. Um, so Mikey, what keeps you, what keeps you working in this medium? What's keeping you engaged with it? Um, that's a really good question. I think, um, I think with hand cut collage specifically, I think I have a relationship with it now that it just feels, um, I mean, maybe it's cliche to say that it's therapeutic, but I feel like that's, that's how I feel about it. I think it just feels, um, like a way it's like a muscle that I, I really worked up and it feels like supernatural to, to work that way. Um, and so I think it's, it's just grounding. And I think it's the thing that feeds all the other parts of my practice. And it's sort of like, I'm working off of this, um, blueprint of hand cut collage and, adapting it to other things. Um, and so I think going back to actually cutting things up by hand and rearranging them, um, just makes me feel kind of grounded in the way that I'm approaching my other projects. And so it's kind of like this cycle that like feeds itself in a way. Yeah. I love that. And, uh, where do you see, where do you see yourself going over the next months, years, if you know? Yeah. I mean, um, right now I'm really putting a lot of, well, one, I'm putting a lot of energy into, um, just having fun with my practice again, because I've been working on a lot of really big projects for a while, um, working towards the the MFA thesis show that we've been talking about this whole time. Um, and, um, yeah, so I'm just sort of taking a break from big projects, starting to just like, yeah, just like have a, a nicer relationship with my practice. And in addition to that, I'm also trying to to show the stuff that I've been working on more, to um, reach out to galleries, make connections with people here in Chicago, and sure. um, just try to share this stuff as much as I can. Do you, do you find that like the new ideas and the um, stuff that moves you forward as an artist is found in the, the fun, the playing, or is it in the, is it in the big projects that put pressure on you to get something done? Or is it in both or in all places? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, I think a, an interesting example of this is like, when I was working on that big animation piece as above, so below, when I was working on that, that's when I was goofing off and doing the like feedback loop experiments that became open sky. Yeah. And so like, there really isn't like the fun projects and then the big projects, it's like the fun projects become the big projects. Right. And then I have to come up with other smaller fun things to work yeah. on that become mm -hmm. big projects. And so like, it's like, you know, the, um, those feedback loop experiments were the seeds that I was planting while I was like, you know, um, I was pulling out while I was harvesting, um, as above, so below, 
And, you know, now I'm starting, I've like harvested everything I possibly could. And now I'm just like, for the first time in a long time, just planting seeds. I love that. Um, and like, it's funny because like, I feel like I've been in this like cycle where those things overlap for like years at this point. And I feel like this is really the first time in a really long time that I've had to like, like everything ends at once and I can sort of just like, it's up to me to start it back up again. Mm. And I'm having a really good time doing that. Yeah. I love, I love hearing that. And I can't wait. I can't wait to see what you come up with over the next couple of years um, and into the future. Um, Before we go to our last two kind of fun questions. um, I think, I think they're fun. Um, Stomping Jen. Uh, Anything else you want to tell us? Um. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Okay, I know we've covered a lot. So. We're yeah. we're coming up on an hour yeah, and forty five minutes. We broke our uh, so. time barrier. I know. Yeah, I mean, we we covered stuff that you know, like I, you know, oh, actually, you know, there is one thing that I'd like to talk about sure. really quick. Yeah, yeah absolutely, cool. for sure. Yeah. So there's one there's one project that that's not on my website yet, and I'm still kind of working on it. But um, it's kind of like I think part of the next chapter of the things that I'm working on. And it's um, it's this projection piece that is like a, a replica of my my family's house on the Cape, and this is a house that um, has been in my family since the 1930s, and it's like a little cottage in the woods, and uh, it's where my grandmother used to live, and this is like the grandmother who. Uh, who collected all of the collage mm-hmm. pieces or like the national geographic magazines that became my first collages. And um, so the, the piece is basically like um, it's like a, an acrylic frame and uh, it's wrapped in vellum, which is the same paper material. That's the screen in, uh, in open sky. And basically I'm like projecting on it from underneath and there's like this open space in the middle of the, of the house structure, which is hanging from the ceiling, by the way. Um, And so the inner surfaces of the house are being projected onto with images of the actual house. And so it's like this glowing version of the house um, that's like sort of suspended in space. And, um, Basically, like, I was reflecting on a lot of really similar themes to Open Sky, which are, like, I mean, this house is in, like, this low-lying area near the ocean, and I'm thinking about how it's been in my family for so long, and also I might be one of the last people in my family to be able to, like, enjoy it in the way that I've been able to, because it's, like, in kind of a vulnerable place, And it's like continually being like threatened by like increasingly extreme weather events on the Cape. Um, And obviously like rising sea levels. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's kind of like a reflection on, on that. And also like an attempt to create this like idealized version of the house that I can share with other people. Um, And so, um, I made like a first version of it last semester 
and I'm like just starting to like get back into it and potentially show it um, in public. And so that's something I'm super excited about. And also like I'm thinking about, you know, doing a longer term project, sort of like excavating a lot of like themes from this house. Specifically, um, there was this uh, religious cult that lived on <laughs> the property in the 1800s oh, wow. and we could do a whole other podcast about this. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really interesting, but basically the leader of this cult um, lived on the property and he sacrificed his daughter. He stabbed her in the chest Jesus. because he thought he was sort of like called by God to, do this sacrifice and that she would be uh, resurrected from the grave. Oh my um, God. And this happened on the property yeah. where, my, where my grandmother lived and where, um, and I think my family were the, the only people to live there after this murder happened. So there was like a 50 year period where the place was vacant um, after the murder happened because no one wanted to live there. Yeah. Um, and messed up. Um, so there's like this direct line between my family finding this place that had been basically abandoned for years to me spending time there now and creating this piece of art um, about this, this place. Um, and I mean, there's like this direct line between like the um, apocalyptic ideology that these <laughs> people had and like the very real prospect of apocalypse happening at the place where they were talking about this stuff over yeah. years ago. And I'm thinking, and I'm thinking about, you know, the, how renewal connects to a apocalypse and like the story you just told us, like, yeah, this horrible thing happened on that land. Right. But 50 years later, your family came across it, bought it. And like generations of people have, like enjoyed it and had like wonderful experiences on that land. And it's that like yin and yang in that interplay between, you know, destruction and rebirth. Oh, that's fascinating. That is so fascinating. I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, of course. I hope that, I I hope it all makes its way. I hope it all makes its way into a piece of art from you. We can enjoy yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. I feel like, um, the more I had the chance to talk about that in, in particular, I feel like the more urgent I feel about trying to manifest that into something yeah. physical, you know? Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, so, um, what do you like to do when you're not working on art or, or trying to get through your, your school program? Like, what do you like to do just to reconnect to Mikey? <sighs> Um, I love watching TV. Honestly, that's like one of my favorite things to do when Me I'm too. not working. <laughs> I, I just, I love having a good show to watch. Yeah. Um, the thing that I, I just finished watching today, um, is this new show called Severance. Uh, oh, I oh. just talked yeah, to you Steve, about that. Stephen King wrote a rave review about it and it's got, oh, really? yeah, I didn't and know it, that. yeah. And it's got me kind of salivating to get into it. I think it's absolutely excellent. Okay. I think it's one of the, the best shows I've watched in a while. Oh, good. I have to watch um, it tonight. 
Yeah, I I, I loved that. I, I thought that was great. Um, cool. And yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of scratches um, a niche maybe in like just my interest in like cinematography and film in general. I mean, I love movies too. I think um, I can be a little impatient, but when I get, find a movie that I love, I like really love it. Yeah, yeah. I have like a good handful of movies and like directors that I really love. Specifically, I, I really love Robert Eggers. Um, have you seen like The Witch or The yes. Lighthouse? Yeah. Oh, don't talk oh, about I The love Lighthouse. The lighthouse. I, hate the lighthouse. I, I love The Lighthouse. I, I love hate it. You guys can talk about it. I absolutely <laughs> hate that movie. I loved The Lighthouse, Mikey. It was and great. Honestly, I think, you know, I, I don't know how, how your schedule is. <laughs> I would love to do another episode just like about uh, like New England, like yeah. um, folk horror because I think it connects to the the thing that we were just talking about, about this cult murder, but it also connects to like that genre of film, which I, I love. Yeah. Um, we could get, we can do that for sure. Like yeah. uh, maybe a little later in the summer, we'll get you on the schedule and bring sure. it back and yeah. do it. Okay. Sounds great. Awesome. Um, <laughs> well now. Cool. Yeah. Um, Mikey Mosher, we've come to the end. Um, and, <laughs> Went way over our time. And let me just say like, it didn't feel, it didn't feel like it. And I, I was cutting us a little bit short too. Like, and I feel like there are more conversations to be had in the future with you. So um, thank you so much for coming on and and sharing. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. This, this was uh, just a great conversation. I loved it. Stomping Jen, anything you want to say? Oh, thank you. All right. I'm very excited to have uh, connected with you. All right, cool. Yeah, thank um, you so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. Um, our listeners, a couple of things. Um, Stomping Jen, what do we say to our listeners? We say thank you oh, yeah. for being there, right? Yeah. Um, we appreciate you. We do. If this is the first time you're um, hearing the podcast because you you know Mikey or you're interested in, in collage art or, or something else, you know we're going to ask you to subscribe to our podcast, mm-hmm. download our episodes. Share um, them. We have lots of great conversations with interesting guests. We're well over 180 episodes at this point. We've got a, a deep back catalog you can go and check out. Um, and we've got lots of interesting people coming up. Also, yes, there are episodes where it's just you and me talking, Stomping oh Jen. Gosh, uh, those are fun. Oh, so fun. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, also, check out our website, please. Yes, uh, softservepodcast.com. You can see some of our featured interviews with with um, national figures. All right? right. Yes. Lots of lots of people. There's stuff on our website. Yeah, people. go check it out. <laughs> All right. Um, getting a little uh, yeah, punchy. Yes, you are getting All a right. little punchy. Okay, we have to folks. Cut you off at the yep. knees. <laughs> uh, so we're just going to go around and say goodbye in our own special way. Uh, let's give our, our our honors to our guest, Mikey Mosher. Just to say goodbye. Yep. Thank you very much. All right. I love it. Stomping Jen. Bye now. All right. And uh, I'll just say the same thing. Bye now. This world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity. And that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear 
from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road.